as we prepare for the message from our brother, our esteemed brother, Duncan Taylor. I love the word esteemed. Could you please turn with me to the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Romans 1, 1 to 20. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of, this, of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now, see, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Heavenly Father, these are powerful words. Your, your word speaks so clearly to us here about Paul's desire to reach out to all men for the gospel. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that uh, as we see and listen um, and enjoy the preaching of your word, that we'd be attentive to what you have to teach us today. It would, goes, it would sink deep into our hearts, and uh, it would change us through your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, everybody. As most of you can realize, I have a cold. So uh, I'm going to do my best. And this mic, there we go, here coming on. So thankfully we have that. That'll make it a lot easier. It's a good thing I'm not leading music this morning. 
It's, I can sing a lot closer to what Buzz can sing right now, but uh, not what I usually do. Um, I just have a quick announcement first. As uh, being involved with the missions here, you may have seen, because my children were selling this on the way in, which is awesome, there's these pillowcases for um, a, a mission that's in town called Camp Promise that I'm helping with. And at Christmas time, they give these out to the kids they work with. There's a lot of them that um, could really use some real basic stuff this time of year. So it's a bit like uh, the shoebox thing, that kind of idea. So if you want to uh, take one of those, that's what we're sort of decided to do this year um, as a church. If you have already done other things, that's great. But if you're able to do one of these, they're at the back and you can uh, get one on your way out today as well. So that's the quick announcement. Now, Adam asked me to, uh, to preach. Actually, what he said was, would you like to, to preach a message? And I said, um, I'm not sure. He said, good. Okay, you're sold. So, okay. <laughs> so this is kind of a first for me. I haven't really done this quite like this before. So bear with me. Um, if you came to hear Adam uh, continue in his amazing series about David, I'm really enjoying it. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you get to hear me do something totally different today. Uh, but hopefully it will still be somewhat beneficial. Um, so I'm going to reread Romans chapter 1, which Scott read for us, but just the last two verses there, 19 and 20. Um, just come up in a sec. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and I thank you that you reveal things both in your word and in creation around us. I pray for those here that uh, out of what I'm saying today, somehow out of my weakness, that you would be glorified and that we might get a slightly bigger glimpse of just how amazing and awesome you are. Pray that you'd help me to speak what is true, to speak it well, and to have the strength to do it. Amen. So I've called this uh, Holy Dimensions, and um, I couldn't really resist kind of adding this pit into it, uh, Batman. So my wife told me to do that one. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Little throwback. Okay, so then we have the, uh, the verse there that we just read. And what I want to do is look at this a little bit with you. So the context is um, Paul is making a case of how humanity is guilty, that we're without excuse, no matter whether you have God's word, whether it's been preached to you, you're still without excuse if you come to him and say that you did not accept the, the gift that he's given to us, that by the knowledge that we have, he reveals more and more to us. That's what he's starting with. Um, he says at the beginning here, what can be known about God, which is interesting in that wording. Uh, other people have pointed out when I was studying this that uh, when you say what can be known, it also implies that there's things that cannot be known. There are things that we can know about God that we, with our finite brains, can actually perceive about him, and there's things that we can't, and things that we may never fully grasp, um, even in eternity with Christ, about exactly what he is like. I think we'll be exploring that forever. Um, the things that he has shown us, uh, he's shown them to us. Like that, that wording there actually implies visually with our eyes, we've seen them, and the place we've seen them is in all that he's made in the things around us. And so in the background here, uh, staring up at the stars is fantastic to do. So here you go, Mark, this is for you, this picture. Winter camping, staring up at the stars, um, or in any kind of camping, when you go out and just observe his universe, it's fantastic, and we all know that we enjoy 
doing that. And there's other ways that we see around us, and some I'm going to get into later, of other things that we see and we perceive things about him. Um, they've been, when they use the word clearly perceived, that is talking more about mentally, what we understand mentally, what we comprehend. So basically putting these two ideas together, what he's shown us visually to what we perceive in our minds, that the things that are invisible about him, he's given us visual ways to see them, visual things that help us to grasp what is invisible. Okay, and then he goes on to say, well, what are these things? Well, he puts them in two major categories. He said God's eternal power and God's divine nature. Okay, there's a lot in those. Obviously, those are huge. What I want to do is break them down a little bit into a couple of points. So first of all, in the eternal power idea, um, there's uh, three things I want to touch on, which are by no means exhaustive, but just a couple of things. First of all, God is not limited by time. So there's a lot of places that we see this in Scripture. So I've got a few here uh, just to give you some ideas. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses is speaking. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God existed from eternity past. He exists to eternity future. He always was, always is. God is not limited by time in that way, the way we are. We are, are much more constrained. So, and Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8, uh, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. His, his interaction with time is completely different than ours. He can see all things at once. He can um, work with time in a totally different way. In Revelation, as we get to the end, and uh, what John is seeing in his Revelation in chapter 1, verse 8, is as the Alpha and the Omega, who was, who is, who is to come, using these tenses to go from, uh, show basically again from eternity past, present now, eternity in the future. God is also not limited to by time he can change it. You can think of uh, different examples in scripture where God actually stepped in and changed time. Um, in Isaiah 38.8 was the story with Hezekiah and God, he was in his sickness and uh, God actually moved time back. He said the, the, the dial, so it was basically a sundial and it was moving back up steps, going in the opposite direction. That was what God, he asked for as a sign. Actually, I don't think he asked for that one but God told him, this is the sign I'm going to do. And he moved it back. And there's another one in Joshua, uh, it's in chapter 10, where they were fighting, if you remember, and uh, as he, uh, he, they needed more time, basically. It says in chapter 10, 12 to 14, the sun stopped in the midst of the heavens and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So God is able to actually manipulate time. Secondly, God is not limited by space. So the term that we're familiar with that is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. He is, he is in all places. He can be where he needs to be and is there. Um, he can also physically appear in our world and has and does do this in different times and places um, in different ways too. The first one I want to touch on is his voice. God appears as a voice in different ways. So Matthew 3, 16 and 17, when Jesus is being baptized, and you have a really good picture of the Trinity, where Jesus is there, the Holy Spirit descends, and God the Father is present as a voice. It says, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. So we didn't see him, but we heard him. In Daniel chapter 4, there's Nebuchadnezzar who's on his, uh, is on his palace and saying, wow, look at how amazing this is, and God again steps in, and we say, it says there's a voice fell from heaven. 
and condemned him for his pride. In Luke 9, at the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on that uh, mountain with the three disciples, again a voice comes and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So there's him appearing as a, as a voice. Also in the incarnation, obviously Jesus is God being in our world, in our space. He steps in. In Galatians 4, 4, it says in the fullness of time, God sent his son into our world. And then um, when Jesus is resurrected, we actually see him as a, a one example of, or a couple of him appearing and disappearing. On the road to Emmaus, he uh, appears. It doesn't say he, he popped out of thin air when he came in, but as he was talking to them and he broke bread with them and he said that he vanished from their sight. He was just gone. And then soon after that, when he appeared in the locked room, he, he came into a locked room that he shouldn't have been able to get to, and he was there. He appeared. So it was coming in and out, especially at that point. Other people even have been um, moved around by God. We have angels. They're not people. They're not God either. There's a different uh, classification, but we know that the angels appear and disappear. They come and they go. They're able to show up. Philip remember was transported when he was walking he was actually picked up by the spirit he disappeared from one place and he appeared in another place Paul was taken into the third heaven or he talks about some other guy which is kind of just alluding to himself said so went to the third heaven wherever that is and then John in the same way with his revelation was shown a glimpse of heaven as well so he's able to appear and disappear he's able to have this voice and he's able to move other people in a similar way he's not limited by space the way we are and finally, God's not limited by what I would call mass or matter. Um, he's able to manipulate that. So the idea of him being uh, omnipotent. So in the physical sense, that nothing's too heavy, nothing's too difficult for him to move. Like you know, parting the Red Sea is not a problem. Uh, it would be for us, but it's not for him. Um, but also in the way that he can appear and change. So again, coming through the locked door or in the transfiguration, not only did they hear the voice of God, but Jesus actually changed in his appearance at that point, right? His face began to, to shine. His clothing became uh, dazzling white. They said, he's, he's changed. Something's going on. He's not working with matter and mass the same way that we do. We don't change our appearance that way. So all of these are, are things that are, are very different about his eternal power. And the second category he had was his divine nature. So that one I want to just look at in the idea of the Trinity. There's three um, points. We look at like a systematic theology book I was looking at for this, just try and make sure I get this right, is we have God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is only one God. These are the things that we know about the Trinity, and this is very difficult for us to get our heads around. So we call that concept the Trinity, which is uh, tri for three and unity, trying to put those two ideas together. It's a pretty cool word, actually. You know, it's not in scripture, but they put, made this word up to try and just start to capture this idea. Uh, Matthew three sixteen and 17, again, it's one of the best places I think we have as a picture of here's God the Son, here's the Spirit coming down, and here's uh, the voice of the Heavenly Father all at once in one place, which is why we know it's not just three different um, you know, pieces of the same person or three different ways of looking. We've got three of them all at once in one place. So we have to wrestle with that. And that's hard. Um, if I was to ask you what analogy you were taught about the Trinity as a kid, give me, a, give me an idea. I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I'm a high school teacher, so I need a little bit of interaction here. What, uh, what analogies have you been used or you have used to try and tell someone else about Trinity? What have we got? 
What? The egg, okay. Three states of water. Nice, as a physics teacher, I like that. Well, sort of. What? A clover? Okay, you want to click the next one for me? So here's some pictures of these same ones. My wife said apple. I'd never heard apple before, but okay, apple. Uh, we got the egg or the clover. And um, the, the problem with all the analogies, they're great, and they're a great starting place, and that's why we use them, but they all break down on those three points that I said. All of them generally lack one of them. Um, so, for example, if you're talking about one of these three, like a clover leaf, you pull one of the leaves off of clover, now you have a leaf of clover, but a leaf of clover is not clover, whereas each part of God is fully God. So that becomes a problem, you know, in that analogy and things like that. Um, the water analogy I find very interesting as well because um, I took engineering, so what I'm trying to do with the, uh, when I was taking my undergrad degree, that's why I teach physics now, so I wanted to bring today some sort of background of what I know a bit better, just as Adam's doing an amazing job of bringing his political science background into David and blowing my mind on the things that he's showing us, it's awesome, I'm hoping I can bring this background in. So when I was studying that, I studied thermodynamics. How many other people have studied thermodynamics? Did you not even have in mechanical engineering there was no thermo? There must have been thermo, yeah, okay. At least one, but most of us don't study thermodynamics. Now, uh, thermodynamics blows my mind, it's pretty hard, but there's one graph that I remember that stuck out of my head, and there was this one here, and this is a, a pressure temperature, and I don't wanna go into the details of this, but just, just as a little side note, it's really cool because it turns out that you can boil water at different pressures if you climb to the top of Everest, it boils at about 70 degrees. You just have to drop the pressure and it boils sooner and that has to do with kinetic molecular theory and I don't wanna go into all that, but the point is, there's this cool spot called the triple point and in the triple point, all three states of matter exist simultaneously in equilibrium at once. Solid, liquid, and gas are all present. That's pretty cool. In fact, I would say if, if I had time to get into that, this may be an even better analogy than all the others of the Trinity. Again, it won't be perfect, but it's pretty cool. Okay, so that, that's all I'm going to say about that one, because that would be a whole, take me a long time to like, you know, pull that out for you, the ones that aren't familiar with the thermo stuff. Okay, so, um, the, the main analogy I want to share with you today, that when he said, do you want to do something, I said, yeah, there's this thing I've been thinking about that I thought was kind of cool. Um, it has to do with math. So, on Friday, I was at a PD, PAD day, we, the kids were at home, and we were talking about math anxiety. So I know that there will be people in the room who if I say math, you're going, the fight or flight kicks in, you know? Okay, so don't run, please. Um, and just to help calm your fears on this, there will be no test. Like this one here, this is a great question, but the, this, go to the next one. There you go. Um, there will be no test. I love that one. I think very carefully about how I make my questions ever since I saw that one. Um, but I'm not gonna test you on this. It, in fact, the thing about geometry that I love is that math is about patterns, and I still hold, as a math teacher, I still say math is all about patterns. So don't worry about the numbers and stuff, I just wanna show you a pattern. In fact, I have some props that my uh, stagehand here is going to bring up for me. And this comes back to something I heard at a t course in teacher's college when I was doing my math prep stuff there. Um, the teacher shared something that I thought was really interesting, and I later discovered, uh, I'm pretty sure he took it from this book right here. This is a book by a guy named Abbott. It was written in 1884. It didn't have this cover originally, it had that cover. So that's him. This is the original, it's called Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions by a Square. 
and then underneath he has his name, so I'm not sure if he's calling himself a square or what, but <laughs> that's interesting. Um, but the, he goes in this story where he's actually critiquing uh, Victorian England and all this stuff, but he, that's not what I want to see from it, but I want to show you how this helped me understand some stuff uh, in a different way that Adam was talking about back in April, and I want to share this with you, and I'm hoping it might make sense, so I'm going to do my best, okay? As an illustration, again, of all those points that I made earlier about his divine power, or uh, divine nature and eternal power. So we'll come back to them and try to illustrate them with this. So we're going to start off with geometry and spatial dimensions. Okay, so here is my example of a three-dimensional object. I have a cube. There we go. And so a cube we define as being in our three x, y, z coordinates, we would call it, if you want to get technical, your three different dimensions, length, height, and width, basically. Okay? So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to break this down because this is what we're most familiar with. And then I'm going to build it back up and show you where we can go with this. So start with, if I take away one of the dimensions, let's say I take away height, what shape am I left with? If I drop the height off of a cube, I end up with a square. Okay? So that cube, in the book, he calls that space land. When you have three dimensions, if you drop one of the dimensions away and get the square, this, he calls that Flatland, and that's the, the title of the book because the character that's in it is a shape, it happens to be a square, and lives in a two-dimensional world, which in math we say that's a plane. It's a two-dimensional surface, okay? If you break that down again, take away one of the dimensions, what are you left with? You're left with a line because that's all you get in one dimension. So this is, he called this, his square goes and visits Lineland, one-dimensional universe. And then he even has, uh, when you take that away, because if you take our one dimension away, you end up with a point, which is Pointland, which sounds, oops, sounds like a pretty pointless existence, but it's not, because it's what it is, it's a point. So anyway. The most pointed existence ever. Okay, no, all right. Now, let's go the other way. Watch this pattern. This is neat. If I begin with a point in zero dimensions, it's got no length, height, or width, or anything. Take that point. If I want to get to the next dimension, there's a pattern that happens. What you do is you take what you have and you copy it. Second point. You then connect the two along one dimension with a line. Now I'm at one dimension. Okay? To get to the next dimension, I'm going to take what I already have, and I'm going to copy it. So I'm going to take a line, I'm going to copy it, I'm going to move it in a different direction than I was already in, move it in a different dimension, and then connect it up with a line. In this case, two lines. And so that's how we get to the square. There's the second line, copying the first, and just connecting these up, like so. If I then want to go from here to the third dimension, I take what I already have in 2D, copy this square, bring it in a different direction, because I've already gone that way and that way, so I'm going to need a third dimension, so I'm going to go this way, and I connect all the points with lines, and that's how we get a cube. Okay? Did you follow me so far? Okay, that's pretty good. Now, the reason I tell you that is because mathematicians love patterns. So if we want to continue the pattern, we just do the same thing. How do we do 4D? Well, you take what you have, there's a cube. Copy it. Let's imagine another cube. And then connect it all with lines 
but you have to move it in a different direction. So there's my copied cube, and I've moved it in some other direction that I don't even know how to describe because I don't know which way it is because it's not this way, this way, or this way. It's some other dimension that I can't even visualize. And then we just connect it with lines, and there we have what is called in math a hypercube. Voila. No problem, right? Yeah, except that that's when our minds just go, what? When I was at university and I was studying stuff, what I realized is I'm a visual learner. It became very, very clear to me because once they were starting to talk about math and n dimensions and fourth dimensions and stuff, I, w I lost them. I had no idea. And then they started drawing it in 3D. I was like, I am back. Hello. <laughs> I'm with you again. So the 4D really messed with my head. And so it's interesting to see this. But what I love about this book is it starts to say, oh, okay, sure, that, that's cool, but that gets really hard to understand. So let's go back to just 2D and 3D because we can understand that much easier. And let's look at the parallels and see how that goes to 4D. So, okay, I can work with analogies. So that's what I'm going to show you. Now, the interesting thing about 4D is that Einstein had a theory that uh, our fourth dimension might be time. So he created what is called the uh, space-time fabric, is what they talk about in physics. So you have your length, width, height, three dimension. Maybe the fourth is time. Put them all together, you have this fabric. And so when he tried to describe what gravity is in his uh, special and general theory of relativity and all that stuff, he said, well, it's kind of like this. It's like a sheet. And so when you have a massive object like the Earth sitting in the sheet, it curves it. And so the reason we have gravity is because things are just sort of you know, falling in towards. And that's why things would spin around other things and stuff. So, okay. You know, that might work. Um, but in, even in this picture, if that fabric up there is like time, is in that, then God would be above that, right? He'd be looking at that. So he would be outside of our time. Now, you have to be careful when you say that because it doesn't mean that God is, if God is outside of time, he's not timeless. It's not like he's frozen in space. He's able to work with it, bend it, move it, Shape it, possibly, right? Do all those things we talked about earlier. How does he do, how does he see all time at once? Well, he, he surveys it, looks at it all. He can see the end and the beginning at once. This is a picture I got of a systematic theology book by Grudem, which I, I understand is pretty standard theology. I've always thought of it kind of like this. Here's time, here's your timeline from creation, because our time sort of started at a moment when he created everything, and it continues off to eternity and will, but God is able to interact with all these parts at any point. He can do the end and the beginning at once, right? And if it is a fabric, he can bend that. He can make the sundial go backwards. He can make the sun stand still. He can do these things. So this uh, is kind of you know, how I think God is interacting with time. Why is he... Um, more than this because God is not timeless. He's time full, if you like. He's more than we are. He's able to interact with it way more than we can. Okay? So that's um, the first one. Now what about space? Because my second point was that um, God is not limited by space. In the book, what we have is a two-dimensional character being visited by a three-dimensional character. And the three-dimensional, looking at the two-dimensional character's world, sees it as this flat plane. Not a curved space, but just a flat plane. And so in this picture here, this is from the actual book, this is the house that the shape lives in. The square lives in a house that's a pentagon and has these other characters and stuff in it. 
um, and his kids and his grandkids and whatnot. But when the, char- when the uh, three-dimensional character is looking down at the two-dimensional world, it can see the whole house open, like a blueprint. Whereas the character in the story is sitting on the side of this looking at his own house, all he sees is a line. It looks closed to him. The whole thing's closed off. You can't see into the house. But the one above looking down can. In fact, the character who's a square to someone outside looking down can see right into the square, can see all of its insides. Now think about the analogy of that. That's a three-dimensional character looking at a two-dimensional character. If there's something who's 4D or more looking at us in 3D, it can see right through us, can see right through a building. Can see it's all just laid out. You know what David said? You, you, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw my unformed being. It's like God can see us right through. Sees our thoughts, sees what we're doing. Like, well, he's not limited by space the way we are. Um, so it kind of looks like in the next one here, you know, there's the three-dimensional, uh, this type of time it's a uh, cylinder, but looking down at that square. And then if the cylinder was to talk to the square, right, but the, the square is 2D. It cannot, it has no way of knowing or interacting with anything outside of this flat plane. That other shape, that other creature can be right above it, could be an inch above it, have no idea it's there because it has no faculty to be able to look up and see it at all. And so when it says, hello, it says, where the heck did that voice come from? What's going on? What's happening? Which reminds me of those passages where it says a voice came from heaven and spoke. Does that mean it's like way up in the sky and being sent down like a megaphone? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's a different dimension that's really not that far away. But we can't perceive it. It's kind of interesting. Okay. The other thing that happens when we talked about space was that God can appear and disappear. So, if that cylinder that you're looking at, if it moves downwards, because it can, because it's 3D, it moves down, suddenly part of it will interact the plane where the 2D character is. Right? Oh, what we got here? There we go. Okay, so here it is. And what would happen as it goes through that plane is that we get this. Uh, a cylinder going straight down, have a cylinder as well, uh, will look like a circle because as it cuts through the plane each time, we just get a circle shape, right? Does this make sense? Okay. So the cylinder can come into the 2D world and be there, and then the character who's on this bottom picture would look at it and go, well, there's a circle there. It just appeared. That's kind of crazy. And then the cylinder continues and goes out and says, well, where'd it go? It just disappeared out of my world. It's gone. God shows up. He comes, he goes. I think even the angels doing this, maybe there's, you know, four-dimensional or something like that. They're able to come in and out. So that's part of it. Um, the other one we said for space was that he could, he could take people. Remember Philip was transported? And those we talked about, right? So if uh, God was to this, sorry, this three-dimensional three uh, three creature was to pick up the 2D creature and take it somewhere. This is what happens in the book. That it was actually a sphere in that case. Picks up the square and says, let me take you to 3D and show you around. And the 2D is like, what is going on right now? He has no idea what is happening. And eventually starts to be convinced, oh, 
there is a third dimension. I can see what's happening here. Then eventually gets the, the sphere comes and puts him back in his 2D world. And he says, wow, guys, there's a 3D. It's amazing. You should come check this out. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he can't convince them because they have no way to, he, there's another thing called up there. What, what do you mean up? What does that even mean, up? There's no such thing as up. Like, they, they have no way to measure it, perceive it, understand it, think about it. In fact, in the book, the square gets locked up in prison because they think he's a raving lunatic. Does that sound like anyone you know, biblically? Who was transported something, was also stuck in prison, and people didn't believe him. Like, it, it sounds a bit like what um, John wrote about. I mean, that wasn't the exact reason he was in prison, but he was transported. He was trying to describe to us, in a way he's like, I can't, and Paul said the same thing. I cannot describe what I have seen. It just, it goes beyond what I can even have words for, right? Just like it would be for this character. Now, um, in the third point, we said that, don't worry about the slide here. Uh, in the third point, we said God's not limited by mass, so he can change form, change shape. So watch what happens here. This is really, really fun for the people that like to think in 3D and shapes. That I said when you take this and you go straight down, you get circles, right? But flip it over sideways, what happens? We get rectangles. As you slice it this way, and the rectangle changes. At first, it's very skinny, same length, but it's skinny, and it gets wider, and then it gets skinnier again, and then it goes away. Now, that would blow the mind of a 2D creature. Not only did it just appear, it actually changed shape. That'd be like for us, a three-dimensional thing coming, suddenly appearing, and then also changing in volume and stuff. It's like, what is that? Just mess with their head. Now, what if you do take it like this and put it in? Oh, then it gets even more fun. Here we go. You get pieces of ellipses or ovals. First it comes in, it's like a chopped off oval, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it becomes an oval at some point, and then it's chopped up. It's not even staying the same shape anymore. It's changing shape entirely. And you want to know a really fun one? Take a cube. Take the cube on its point and put it straight down into a two-dimensional surface. This is what you get. It goes through several different shapes. It starts off as a triangle as you chop the tip. It then becomes a truncated triangle. And then it, right in the middle, it's a hexagon, a perfect hexagon. That's pretty cool. I mean, just from a math gym, whoa, it's a hexagon. And then it goes, this all came from a cube. It's a cube. But just depending on which way it's rotating and where it is in the world, in the surface it's going through, we get entirely different shapes. You know what the analogy of that is for us? If you were to take a four-dimensional creature, you know, the thing that we cannot comprehend, because we just can't put our heads around it, if it, they figure this out by taking the, the, the analogy and just working it back, these are the shapes. Go to the next one. This is what a 4D hypercube looks like if it comes into our 3D world as it passes through. That's what you get. You're like, yeah, the, the last slide seemed funny. This one's like, what? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mind-bending stuff. But again, it's the analogy that I'm going for here. If God, I'm not saying God is 4D. He's probably more than that. 
But it's just an analogy. It's just to help us think, of, okay, if God can appear, he can change form, like in the transfiguration, totally change how he appears. Because he's just maybe revealing more of who he is. It's like the cube is just rotating a bit. Cool. Just see more of it. <clears throat> um, the other part that's really important about this, and this goes back to what Adam was talking about. Do you remember in April, he talked about what bodies we might have when we're raised from the dead? He talked about it being more substance, right? More substance, not less. So when Jesus appears in the locked room, did he get into the locked room because he was a ghost and walked through the wall? I think that's where we mostly go to in that story in our minds, right? He's a ghost. He just like he's not really material. He just started. He just came in, or something, or he appeared, or, right? But if this analogy makes any sense, if this holds at all, then he's more massive, not less. How can he appear? Well, because he can come into our world and out of it wherever he wants to, and he, there's more substance to him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, for those that like to, to read his stuff, he talks about Shadowlands. He says, our world is like a shadow, which kind of reminds us also, um, there's a Paul who talks about our life being like a vapor. Similar kind of idea. We're less, much less substantive than God is. Right? So if I have an object here, I've got this uh, metal tree that Peter loves so much. I have this here, and its shadow on the back wall is completely 2D. This is a 3D object, but it casts a 2D shadow, and it always will. There's no such thing as a 3D shadow. It's only 2D. You have to drop off a dimension when you go to a shadow. So if we are shadows in 3D of what we may be and what God is and God is more than, he is more substantive. That shadow has no mass. You can't weigh it. You just can't. I mean, if you were a Peter Pan, he tries to pick it up and stick it back on the silver. Like you, but you can't. There is no like mass to a shadow. Even actually of a completely 2D object, this piece of paper we would think of as being 2D. It's not though. You can take a micrometer and you can measure the height of that thing. It has a height and therefore it actually has mass and volume. But real 2D has no volume at all. Its volume is zero. Its mass is zero. So in that analogy, we are like nothing compared to him. He has the mass, not us. <clears throat> um, so God is, is mass full. We are, are by comparison, mass less. Oh yeah, the other one Adam told me about this word, that was great, it's called the word kavod. Kavod, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right at all. Um, but in, in Hebrew, I believe it's a Hebrew word, Kavod is the word we translate glory. When God shows up, like in the tabernacle, his glory is there. He said that word literally means weight. God's weight shows up. Which again, if his weight is so far beyond ours, that's really cool to think about. Okay, lastly, when uh, we talk about his divine nature, the Trinity, how does this have anything to do with that? Well, uh, there's a guy by the name of, I hope we can say his name right, L.T. Jayachandran. He's the executive director for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries uh, in Singapore. You've probably heard of Ravi Zacharias, an apologist. He was a senior civil engineer for India. That was his training. So he said this when he was talking about, there's his name cut off. Um, 
he, when he was thinking about how do I explain the Trinity to someone, he said the analogy comes to his engineering mind, he's a civil engineer, is the cube wanting to identify with the two-dimensional world. That's <laughs> the same analogy. So I'm not out on a limb here. There are other people who have thought about this. Um, the, the cube wants to become a square. And when it does, when it's in that world, it is 100% cube, and yet it's 100% square. So there's two parts, but they're both fully the same thing. They're both God, like unlike the clover analogy. Uh, that doesn't get to all the pieces, again, but it, it starts it. And there's another group of people you may have heard of. They do the Bible Project. Love the Bible Project. And as I was getting ready for this, because I've thought about this one for a few years, this topic, I, I happened to search something, and I was like, oh, look, there's a Bible Project video. And it uses the same analogy. <laughs> so I want to show it to you. All right. Is your head hurting yet? Hmm. So, am I saying that God is four-dimensional? No. Maybe. Probably, if he is, then it's probably more than that. More dimensions. That would only make sense. What I'm saying is that there's analogies he's given us in the created world, which is 3D, that we can perceive and understand that help us to understand things we can't see, things that we can't grasp. We can just start to get a bit of a glimpse of what they might be of who God is a bit more. So if anything, all of this shows us he is so much more than us. We are so much less than him. All our analogies ultimately fail because he is just awesome. But they just shed light a little bit on who God is. And I think what I've discovered in a scientific type of field is that uh, what this guy said, this was uh, Buckminster Fuller, and he said, uh, Scott is known for quoting something like this as well. That the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. Adam said the same thing when I was preparing this, and he's like, you know, I, I feel like I know less now that I have my master's and his PhD than he did when he started. Because you just get to know a bit more and a bit more. You're like, wow, there is so much more to God, to, you know, to all of these things than we can get our little two-pound brains around. It's just amazing. So what should we do with this? I think it should humble us. I think it should humble us and give us reason to worship God who is and was and will be and is amazing and who just blows our minds. So that's what I leave us with. Um, in Revelation, when John is seeing these creatures in whatever dimension he's, he's in, and God's showing him this, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is what the, the creatures around the throne are, are worshiping God and saying all the time, and I think we will too. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so awesome. You're so amazing, and I love that you have placed things around us that give us a glimpse of you, that help us to unravel this puzzle of, of who you are and what you are like, but I'm also so thankful that we'll never understand you. We will never be you. We are always going to be less and we're always going to worship you because you are amazing. Thank you that we can gather here together, that we can try and uh, shed light on these things to each other and, and provide insights a bit from one to another. But I thank you most of all that you are present, that you are here, that 
Would you speak to us? Would you lead us and guide us? I thank you that you've given us your grace and your mercy, that we can be known by you, forgiven for our sins, and made right in your sight. You are so awesome. We love you. Amen.